Have you ever had a friend that asked to borrow money and you wavered before opening your wallet because with a pang of guilt you thought, I might never get this money back? On today's episode of The Fiona Show Tax Provision, we're going to discuss what companies do when they're offered a tax benefit they might never be able to use because they know they're likely to keep operating at a loss. The more provision savvy among you have probably already guessed it. Today, we're talking valuation allowance. And to help us do it, I'd like to welcome back Cross Border Solutions Senior Tax Manager, Howard Telson. Thank you again for joining us, Howard. Thanks, Matt. I appreciate it. So just to discuss valuation allowance, we have to revisit deferreds. And if anyone wants a deeper dive on the subject of deferreds, we have an episode all about them, and please check that out. But for now, let's just do a quick recap of deferreds and what they have to do with valuation allowance. Yeah, sure. So when we mention deferreds, we're referring to a company's deferred tax roll forward, which ultimately provides a company's deferred tax asset and deferred tax liability amounts on an item by item basis. And this kind of granular breakdown of DTAs and DTLs, as, as they're called, at the end of the year is then summarized and presented in the company's tax footnote, right, in the financial statements. So recall for US public companies, that would be the form 10K. And then private companies and foreign companies, you know, have similar requirements as well. And then on the financials themselves, the breakdown of DTAs and DTLs is ultimately summarized to land on a total deferred tax asset and or deferred tax liability, which makes its way onto a company's balance sheet. So one of the core financial statements, the balance sheet. And let's recall what typically makes up deferred tax assets and liabilities. And these include temporary book to tax differences, right? So timing differences, net operating loss carry forwards, and and tax credit carry forwards. Those are kind of the three main pillars of what makes up deferred tax assets and liabilities. And, you know, the reason these items result in deferred tax assets and liabilities to begin with is because deferred tax is really meant to track the impact of items on future tax returns, right? So, with deferred tax assets resulting in a future tax benefit, like a future deduction or credit, and then deferred tax liabilities resulting in a future tax expense, like a future item of income. So the current provision really gets us to an estimate of current tax liability or benefit for the year. And it's a precursor for our current year tax return done several months later. The deferred provision, on the other hand, is forward-looking, tracking what will impact a company's tax liability or benefit in future years. And then the last point to make is let's recall that deferred roll forward does not track any permanent book to tax differences since these are differences in treatment of an income or expense item between accounting and tax that will never reverse in the future. And this of course is you know quite different than temporary differences, which are differences in treatment of an income or expense item between accounting and tax that will reverse in the future, right? So as opposed to a permanent differences, these temporary differences are truly temporary in nature, or really just a difference of the timing of a deduction or income inclusion between book and tax. Indeed. And can you review how deferreds fit into the overall tax provision process? If we go back to what we covered on some of the earlier episodes of the podcast, we discussed that there are a few core tax provision calculations in the whole tax provision process. And we could really narrow it down to three, essentially. So typically, a company will begin provision process with completing their current provision first, which I just mentioned is that calculation that gets us to our current year estimate of tax liability. And then following completing the current provision, second, companies will generally hop over to the deferred rule forward, and they'll work their way through this schedule. And then following that, third, 
companies will go ahead and do the rate reconciliation, which explains and proves out that you know effective tax rate, which we talked about you know in detail on on other episodes as well. And you know, of course, I'm leaving out many of the finer details here, but this is kind of just a high level lay of the land in terms of the provision process. And you can see how the deferred roll forward sort of sits in the middle, but it is a core component and typically one that companies are really keenly focused on getting right. And auditors, financial statement auditors, like you know, accounting firms that review the provision, they're really keenly focused on reviewing it quite closely and actually proving out the ending balances on this deferred roll forward against supporting work papers. So it's a calculation that gets a lot of attention, and the majority of companies will spend, honestly, the most amount of time in their provision process focusing on their deferred roll forward, sort of above and beyond the other provision schedules, just given its its detailed and at times, you know, complex nature. All right. And with that background, now let's get to the focus of today's episode. What is valuation allowance, and how does this come into play in terms of a deferred roll forward? Right. So as noted, the final product of the deferred roll forward is arriving at that deferred tax asset or liability figure that goes on a company's balance sheet, which is one of those, you know, as I mentioned, core financial statement schedules that really gets a lot of attention from the investing community and other you know, interested parties. So, of course, this schedule should be correct and, and accurately state a company's asset and liability position. And in this vein, misstating a company's assets or liabilities would be misleading for investors and other financial statement users. And companies, when you think about it, companies would have an incentive generally to overstate assets, right, to make it look like they have more assets and understate liabilities to make it look like they have less liabilities, you know, kind of for obvious reason, right? And so the way the accounting rules address this issue, particularly related to tax and ensure that deferred tax assets and liabilities are appropriately stated is through this valuation allowance mechanism. So what a valuation allowance does is it forces a company to look at their deferred tax assets in particular, right? And to say, is this asset appropriately stated? And if not, the company needs to reduce this deferred tax asset to an amount that is appropriately stated and represents the true future tax benefit that the company expects it will receive in the future from this asset. The mechanism used to reduce the deferred tax asset to the appropriate amount that a company actually expects to receive a future tax benefit on is by putting up a valuation allowance against the DTA. And I'll refer to valuation allowance as a VA for short. And DTA, of course, means deferred tax asset. So what I just gave basically is the practical definition of what a VA does. And I'll also provide more of the technical tax accounting jargon definition as well. Yes, I did feel it was almost that point of the episode where we begin to use more abbreviations. But we, <laughs> but now that we've properly set the stage, I think our listeners will be okay. We were overdue, right? <laughs> so getting into more of the weeds, the technical definition. So ASC 740 is another abbreviation for you. So the accounting standard that kind of dictates the treatment of income taxes under U.S. GAAP states that companies must reduce deferred tax assets by evaluation allowance if, based on the weight of available evidence, it's more likely than not, which is a likelihood of more than 50%, that some portion or all of the deferred tax assets will not be realized. And you know, obviously, there's quite a bit to unpack here. So first, we could see that the valuation allowance serves to bring the deferred tax assets of a company to an amount that they expect to realize, right? the amount that will actually yield a future tax benefit. And this makes sense. The valuation allowance, or VA, as I mentioned, people call it, bring the DTA to really its correct value and serves not to overstate a company's assets. But then, you know, with that, the next question kind of comes along, well, how is this determination made? And then number two is, how is it measured? 
So you can see the literature says this is determined based on the weight of available evidence. We will talk about you know what exactly that means. So that's how it's determined, and obviously that's pretty vague. But then how is it measured? Once you know you need potentially evaluation allowance, how do you know how much you need? So the question of measurement is another issue here. And the literature basically says that companies must record a VA against its DTA if it's more likely than not, or greater than 50% chance, that some or all of the DTA will not be realized. So we'll talk about how that measurement is done and, and how it could certainly be a bit you know, of a subjective determination as well in many cases. Indeed. And even before we drill down on this and discuss even those finer points, uh, when we talk about valuation allowances, is this a worldwide concept or does this really only apply to U.S. headquartered companies? Yes, that's a great question. And the concept of valuation allowance really is a U.S. concept under U.S. GAAP. However, and it's a big however, IFRS, the international standard, does provide that companies can only record deferred tax asset if it's probable. So if it's probable that the asset will be realized. And this probable standard generally comes down to a likelihood of more than 50%, which is really similar to U.S. GAAP's more likely than not standard that I just kind of alluded to. So practically, U.S. GAAP and IFRS are fairly aligned that deferred tax assets should be provided at their appropriately stated value, which is the amount that is more likely than not or probable, right, greater than 50%, to be realized. And practically, U.S. headquarter companies are supposed to record the full deferred tax asset and then reduce it by evaluation allowance under U.S. GAAP, while on the other hand, foreign-based companies under IFRS just simply record the deferred tax asset at its probable value. So recording kind of the net as opposed to the gross plus evaluation allowance to reduce it. There's a bit of a difference in, in kind of practical approach here, but essentially at the end of the day, uh, the end result is very similar. It kind of gets you to a similar place. Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University Weekly. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai slash tpu. And with that distinction between the U.S. and foreign accounting standards, and before we get deeper into the details surrounding how a VA is determined at a high level, why is a valuation allowance important to the tax provision? It's really all about fairly stating those deferred tax assets and ensuring a company's balance sheet is appropriately stated. You're not overstating any assets. And it's not just the balance sheet that the VA impacts. It also influences a company's total income tax expense. It influences earnings as a whole because of that. And then it influences the effective tax rate as well because of that. And to understand why this is, we, we actually need to do a, a quick lesson in journal entries, you know, everyone's favorite activity from Accounting 101. And, you know, of course, journal entries are, are kind of the language of accounting and, it, and it's all about debits and credits. And, you know, when we talk about tax accounting, it's really no different. So let's think of what a journal entry is when a company sets up a deferred tax asset for, in this case, an unfavorable temporary difference, right? So in this case, you would debit 
current tax expense. So you debit the, the profit and loss, and then you credit your current tax payable. So you're adding more tax expense, and then you're recording a payable. And that reflects kind of the impact of the temporary differences on the current provision, right? So we're touching current tax expense. It drives up current tax expense, and then it causes companies to owe tax this year via that payable mechanism. So that's kind of the first part of the entry, and that's where it touches the current provision. But then there's a second part of the entry, because remember, a temporary difference, you know, not only affects this year, but it affects future years. And this part of the entry, you need to debit deferred tax asset, and you need to credit deferred tax benefit. And this reflects, you know, the impact of the temporary difference on the deferred provision, where you're recognizing the future tax benefit for this item in the income statement, and accruing that deferred tax asset to the balance sheet for the future tax benefit that the company will get. And before any consideration of evaluation allowance, those are the core entries of a temporary difference. And as we discussed on the rate rack episode, temporary differences don't impact the effective tax rate. And the reason for that, you know, when you think about the journal entries, it's because the deferred tax benefit and the current tax expense are recorded for the same exact amount, but one's a debit and one's a credit. So they're going opposite ways and they basically net out and they cancel out. So they end up being zero impact to your total tax expense. And therefore, they don't impact your effective tax rate, which of course is total tax expense divided by pre-tax book income. It's kind of two sides of the same coin, right? So now let's take one step further and let's say a company determines they need a valuation allowance on this DTA they just recorded. And we'll get into how that determination is made in a little bit. But if they decide they do need the VA, then they basically have to record the following journal entries. So they would debit deferred tax benefit or P&L, and then they credit valuation allowance. So here we put up the valuation allowance, which serves to reduce that deferred tax asset balance on the balance sheet. But the other side of the entry is reducing the deferred tax benefit, or you know, it's an income statement item, a P&L item. So that impacts our total tax expense directly. And here, by removing or reducing the deferred tax benefit from the equation, this actually results in a higher total tax expense. And this higher total tax expense, you know, what does it do? It drives our earnings down and it drives our ETR up. So this is really a major reason why valuation allowances, they're such a key topic and one that is really highly scrutinized and highly focused on in tax departments because any changes to it directly impact earnings and directly impact the ETR. And in the case of putting a valuation allowance up or increasing a VA, it's a negative impact drives tax expense up and the ETR up. But you know it works the other way around too, where if it is determined that a VA is previously recorded is no longer needed, and we'll get into once again how that determination is made. But if it is decided that you used to have a VA and now you don't, or you need less VA, then a company would pull down their VA and they would do that by debiting the valuation allowance and crediting deferred tax benefit again. So you could see this actually drives total tax expense down as we are removing the VA and we're restoring our DTA to its original value. And we're putting the deferred tax benefit, you know, that P&L benefit back up. So with this, it would bring a company's ETR down. It would raise profitability up given the lower total tax expense that results. So, you know, that's sort of a high level overview of how VAs, you know, impact both the balance sheet, but then also the income statement. And it really impacts that ETR as well. And given that impact and the fact that the determination of this measure could be a bit subjective, which we'll get into, this is why, you know, VAs are so important to the provision and really are a key focus in the in the whole provision process. And in which case, we may get into some level of subjectivity here. Uh, why don't we circle back to how companies determine they need a VA and if they do determine they need one, how do they go about figuring out the amount? You know, let's go back to our deferred tax asset types, right? So 
generally deferred tax assets result from unfavorable temporary book to tax adjustments, net operating loss carry forwards, and tax credit carry forwards. So these are sort of all the ways in the future to essentially drive down tax expense, be it through the reversal of a temporary difference and a future deduction or the future you know, net operating loss or, or a credit that you could offset tax expense with. So really the key to the determination of if these DTAs are going to be useful and worth anything is if a company expects to have future taxable income and therefore tax liability. Because if not, they don't expect any income or tax expense in the future, then these DTAs will just go to waste and they're either going to expire unused or they're just going to sit around there kind of being useless. So in determining if a valuation allowance is needed, a company looks to their income. And by the way, this determination is done on a jurisdictional basis. So looking at U.S. federal, each U.S. state kind of individually, and then each foreign jurisdiction with separate tax paying components. So a company will look to each of its jurisdictions for sources of income. And getting a little bit more technical, these generally include four potential items. And this is sort of an order of importance. So if a company is looking for income, where could they look for income? So one, they could look for income in prior carryback years. So if you're allowed to carry back your net operating loss to offset income in a, in a prior year, of course, that would be an easy way to utilize that DTA that resulted from the NOL. And therefore, you wouldn't really need a valuation allowance because you're able to use up that asset and you're able to carry back offset income in a prior year and you're able to use that DTA, take advantage of it, lower your tax expense from a previous year. You could utilize that and you wouldn't need a valuation allowance because of that. So that's one. And that's kind of the most uh, you know, objective evidence and kind of the gold standard, right? Why you wouldn't need a VA. Another source of income is kind of looking forward to the future. And it's looking at a future reversal of kind of favorable temporary differences. So if a company recognized a tax deduction this year, but not a, not any book expense, or in other words, it accelerated the tax deduction, this is a source of income. As in the future, when the book expense is recognized, it will be reversed out for tax purposes, increasing the taxable income in the future. And this would apply you know, for income recognized this year for books, but will be recognized in the future for tax as well. So basically looking at what's going to happen in the future, is there going to be taxable income generated because of these timing differences? If so, that is a future source of income that's also fairly objective, right? Because you know what your timing differences are at this moment in time. And sort of a key exercise related to this particular source of income is something known as scheduling out the reversal of the temporary differences, because this would ensure that your favorable temporary difference reverses in the right years prior to you know, the expiration of any tax attributes like an NOL or credit or whatever it may be. So those are two sources. And then you know, as we work our way down, these sources get a little bit less subjective kind of as we go. So the next one is looking at future taxable income without accounting for temporary differences and carry forwards. So we're thinking in the future, and that's all based on management projections. That, of course, gets you know, really into subjective determination. And that's kind of why the first two income sources are more important in this analysis than these future kind of income projections. But that's number three. And then number four, another source of income, and this is kind of the most subjective, and one that generally can't be relied on its own. It would kind of need to be combined with another source of income to account as like a real, real support to support the realization of these DTAs. But this one is tax planning strategies. So does the company have any tax planning strategies to increase their taxable income? You know, it could be from the sources kind of noted above, but how are they going to increase their taxable income to actually burn through their attributes and not let them expire unused, right? So 
if a company kind of goes through this analysis and determines where are its sources of income, what it takes is evidence of one or more source of taxable income to support a conclusion that no VA is needed. So, you know, particularly it's those first two mentioned, carry back availability and future reversals of favorable temporary differences. Those are the most objective and the most important in the analysis. Much more, you know, kind of important and objective than future taxable income projections and tax planning strategies. And then when we're thinking about this determination, you know, will the company have income in the future? Because they need that income in order to actually be able to recognize these deferred tax assets and not put that valuation allowance up. What companies need to do is they also need to look at all the positive evidence related to this determination and all the negative evidence. So positive evidence is kind of just those items that, you know, we just talked about along with strong earnings history. So proving that you've earned you know, a lot of income in the past, and that could be, you know, you have a sales backlog expected to produce tax income in the future. You could have a new customer signing to come as well to kind of support a company's position that their DTA is reliable and, and no VA is needed. So these tax income sources could come from a few different places, but positive evidence means that you're going to generate that taxable income or you have that source in the past, right? And then negative evidence on the other side does just the opposite. And it would start shifting the analysis the other way where a VA could potentially be needed. So a company would look at, you know, their positive evidence. And if there's not a lot, then they have to start looking at their negative evidence and say, you know, have we uh, had a lot of cumulative losses in recent years? Do we have a lot of past losses? Do we expect a lot of future losses? Do we have a history of NOL carry forwards and credit carry forwards kind of expiring unused? Are there unfavorable trends in the business? Can management not really forecast earnings properly? These would all be you know, negative evidence. And you know, the more negative evidence that piles up, the greater likelihood that a company would need to record this valuation allowance because if they're not going to earn income in the future, they're not going to be able to recognize that deferred tax asset. So as you could probably tell, Given how companies need to consider all this different information, you know, positive evidence and negative evidence, in order to kind of ascertain if it needs evaluation allowance, this analysis is at times difficult. And it could come down to some subjective measures like projections and even tax planning strategies in you know, certain situations. So typically, companies have incentives to not want to be in evaluation allowance position given the negative earnings and ETR hit that they have to take when putting up the VA. And then on the other side, companies who are in a VA, they want to come out of it usually so to get that earnings and ETR boost as such, because financial statement auditors are really keenly interested in how companies determine the need for a VA. And they review this decision-making process, you know, the positive evidence, the negative evidence, they review it closely and ensure they're aligned and in agreement with management's decision. And then it gets even trickier, honestly, when determining the amount of the VA and if a company may need a partial VA against its per tax asset, so not a full VA, but only a piece of the DTA needs to be reduced. And that could be because a company determines it's more likely than not that it will realize a portion of the DTA based on you know, all the positive and negative evidence, but not the full amount. So I'll just give you know, a really quick example. So let's say a company with a DTA of 100 bucks expects to earn enough income to support $60 of its DTA based on you know, all the evidence at hand then it would need a $40 valuation allowance. So it wouldn't need the full amount of the DTA to be reduced by the VA, but just a portion, just that $40. On the other hand, of course, that company could have also looked at the weight of all evidence and said, on that $100 DTA, I actually do need a full VA because you know I have way more negative evidence than positive evidence, and it doesn't look like I'm going to be able to get any benefit from this future DTA. I'm not going to have the income 
to be able to take advantage of the future expenses and future credits to come. So therefore, I'm going to put up a full VA of 100 bucks, and that's going to reduce that DTA to zero, right? So likewise, you know, since this determination is on a jurisdictional basis, a company could say they need a VA on certain state attributes or certain international attributes or, you know, obviously federal attributes, but it may not need a VA on everything. So companies need to look at each DTA in each jurisdiction. They need to look at all the positive evidence, all the negative evidence, and then make the determination from there, making this a really detailed and, and pretty tricky analysis. A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai/rd. That's xbs.ai/rd. Does the evaluation allowance stay the same from year to year? And if not, what causes it to fluctuate? You know, this analysis that we just discussed above actually has to be done on a quarterly basis for U.S. companies. So companies need to look at the realizability of their DTAs on each financial statement, be it you know quarterly or annually, and they need to assess if those DTAs are realizable or if they need a VA. And if they have a VA or need one, they need to determine the appropriate amount which fluctuates with the amount of the DTA. So if the DTA went up because the company had another year of a loss, right, another net operating loss that they spit out, DTA goes up because net operating loss carry forward generates a DTA, then the VA is going to you know, potentially move with it. It's going to generally follow suit and kind of go up as well. But then you know, separately from just the movement in the DTA, you also need to look at your analysis and say, okay, based on all the positive evidence at hand, based on all the negative evidence at hand, do I still need a DTA? Do I still need a VA on my DTA? You know, if the answer is yes, then once again, you need to go to the measurement and figure out, okay, well, how much VA do I need against my DTA? How much of my DTA is more likely than not to be realized and vice versa? So outside of just kind of the regular fluctuations in the DTA and how that impacts the VA, you also need to go through that analysis exercise kind of in each quarter for US companies and generally more of an annual process for foreign companies. But when this change occurs, you do need to recognize it in the financial statement. So it is something that companies are really focused on on a quarterly and annual basis and something that auditors look at you know, generally every time they're auditing financial statement, be it quarterly or annual. And what are the most common companies that tend to need a valuation allowance? VAs, you know, they're really common to see in loss companies. So given the fact that they generate DTAs from their net operating loss carry forwards and their other unused attributes like a tax credit carry forward, they can't use those DTAs since they're in a loss position and they're not generating any income and therefore they're not generating any tax expense. So these companies usually end up having to put up a valuation allowance. And, you know, if they kind of stay in that loss position over time, they have to remain in that valuation allowance position. 
of course, you know, if trends change and all of a sudden they start generating income and coming out of that loss position, that completely changes the analysis, right? Then all of a sudden, maybe you have some positive evidence that outweighs your negative evidence and may, potentially you could get rid of the VA. But generally, you know, it's really lost companies that tend to have this valuation allowance. And when we think about which kinds of companies could be lost companies, this could include startups, right? So companies pretty early in their life who haven't quite yet turned to profitability, and there isn't enough positive evidence, like the reversal of favorable timing differences. Obviously, they don't have a strong earnings history because they're fairly new. They don't have big future income projections just yet. They don't have a strong pipeline of customer orders, et cetera. So it could include startups just because you know they don't have that positive evidence and they really have a lot more negative evidence. History of losses, kind of not generating income yet. They don't have really favorable projections on hand. So you know, startups are very common type of company that would have a valuation allowance. Another type of company could be those companies really hit hard by COVID. The pandemic really hit a lot of businesses hard. And if a company was maybe struggling pre-COVID, this really accelerated it generally across the board. And it put many companies kind of over the edge of having that maybe negative evidence exceed the positive evidence. And it caused some of these companies to have to put up VAs that didn't have valuation allowances in the past. Because, you know, you always have to look at that mix of evidence and every quarter, every year, that evidence could change. And all it takes is something like COVID to completely change the dynamics of a business. And if that happens, then of course, you have to look at your valuation allowance and say, these deferred tax assets I have on my balance sheet, you know, these future tax benefits that I think I'm going to be getting, will I be getting them in the future? Now, because of the way companies can be struggling, maybe not, right? Maybe they won't be getting in the future. And if they determine it's not more likely than not that they're going to get them, right? If they don't hit that 50% threshold, then they would have to put up a VA. Those are kind of lost companies and kind of the culprit for pretty large valuation allowances potentially. But then outside of lost companies, there are even profitable companies who have valuation allowances as well. So for example, let's just say that you you have a large profitable company who operates all around the world, but maybe one jurisdiction, one country that they operate in, they're not so profitable. But all around the rest of the world, they're doing great. So you could have a company profitable across the whole world, but in one country or in one state, it generates a loss consistently for some reason. Maybe it just hasn't taken off that company in that one country, or you know, there's some financial reasons for it to not really be in an income position year after year. Could be you know, a state, could be a country. So that could be a scenario where you actually need a partial valuation allowance just related to that one particular jurisdiction, or maybe there's a couple of them. This is all to say basically that valuation allowances, while they're much more common and they're much more material, right, for lost companies, and that includes kind of startups, companies hit by COVID, et cetera, it's really a broad concept and one that almost every company kind of needs to reckon with because most companies, even the most successful ones, they will need to look across all their jurisdictions and say, are all of our jurisdictions kind of successful? Are all of our jurisdictions DTAs? deferred tax assets going to be recognized? And if the answer is no to kind of any particular jurisdiction or set of jurisdictions, then you would need to potentially put up that VA. It's a broad concept. There's some subjectivity here and companies are really keenly focused on this, you know, as they go through their quarterly and annual provisions. And just to recap everything we've gone over today, because I know Howard's done such a great job of explaining it, but uh, a valuation allowance is an amount used to offset a deferred tax asset, such as a net operating loss 
or tax credit that a company is not likely to realize due to, say, continually operating at a loss. This amount must be continually reassessed to ensure it doesn't need to be increased or decreased, or should any changes need to be made, a journal entry can be added to make the necessary adjustments. Ultimately, the valuation allowance has an impact on ETR and can be quite a tricky, even subjective measure, so it really receives a lot of scrutiny from tax departments and external auditors. Note to multinational companies everywhere, if you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, Big Four. We've got the answer. Cross-border solutions, AI-powered transfer pricing software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, penalties, and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big-name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, Big. You you know what? Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of cross-border solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp. That's xbs.ai slash tp. We want to thank Howard for joining us on this informative discussion. If you like this podcast, you're going to love the other shows in Cross-Border Solutions Tax Podcast Suite. That's the Fiona Show R&D Tax Credit and the Fiona Show Transfer Pricing. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get podcasts. That's the Fiona Show Tax Provision, and we'll keep you up to date on the latest in tax provision. I'm your host, Matthew DeMello. John Alex Busey is our audio producer. Stephen Markow is our associate producer. Marilyn Mitchumstrom is our executive producer. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. We'll catch you next week. Thank you.